speaking on the subject, the love of Christ for His own. The theme is love today. We've already read verses 21 through 35 of John 13, so I'll read some companion texts, and then we'll make some comments on a number of verses. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own, which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. He loved them completely. He loved them to the uttermost. We've already read 21 through 35, but I would like for you to turn to John chapter uh, 15, and we'll read verses 15 and 16. John 15, verse 15. Jesus is talking here in the upper room. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Verse 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Your translation may say appointed you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. In the early church, the Lord's Supper, which we'll be observing today, though we don't call it a supper, we do it in the morning service. But in the early church, the Lord's Supper was observed in connection with a more full-course fellowship meal known as the love feast, the agape feast. We're not sure of exactly how it was connected to what we're about to do, or if what we think of as communion was a part of that or separate, connected to it. The writer Jude refers to false teachers who were, in the 12th verse, spots in your feasts of charity. That means hidden reefs in your love feasts. So there's a reference to the fact that it was probably a common practice, the agape meal, the, the love feast. The Apostle Paul refers to this when he wrote to the Corinthians. He was trying to straighten out some abuses about the Lord's table. He was giving some instructions. The principal abuses were gluttony and partiality or favoritism. Some people were coming to the church at Corinth, and they were gorging themselves at this love feast. Some of them were even getting drunk. Others were leaving the love feast hungry. It was becoming a caricature of what God intended it to be. And yet uh, it shows that if they left hungry, the, uh, the Lord's table itself must not have been a, a full feast. They wouldn't have left, uh, they, you wouldn't get a meal out of just a piece of unleavened bread and taking a swallow from a communal cup. But with all of the awful abuses that were rife in the church at Corinth, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper was intended to be a celebration of love, in particular, the dying love of our Lord and Savior. I often call it this, Brother Brent related to it recently, referenced it, I call this a trysting time, a trysting time with our Savior. You know what a trysting time is? You know what the word tryst means? A tryst is an appointment between lovers at a certain time and place, an agreed-upon time and place. 
Think about that for a moment. Do we look forward to coming to this service so we can commune with our Savior, so we can express our love and reflect on His love to us? Or has it gotten old? Is it a formality? Is it an afterthought? We come and we see the table spread. Oh, yeah, today's Lord's table. It needs to be something special. It needs to be sanctifying. We may not call it a means of grace, but I hope by by saying that we don't discount how important it is. I think the Lord knew we needed this, don't you? He knows how our hearts are so prone to get cold and forgetful. Let's focus on love this morning, agape love, the highest form of love, divine love. The most beloved and quoted verse in the Bible, you know it by heart, is John 3.16. So let's say it together. Test yourself here. Okay, ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say, would you just mark what I'm about to say? God loves everybody. God loves the whole world. God loves the most hardened sinner. But the love He bears for His own, His church, His bride, is a special love. It is a distinguishing love. It is a surpassing love. Do you realize what the Bible says about us? And this is how Jesus regards us. We are the apple of His eye. We are the sheep of His pasture. We are the jewels in His crown. We are the excellent ones in all the earth in whom His delight. Wow. The devil doesn't want you to think that. Because he wants you to disappoint the love of Jesus towards you. Oh, the depths of Christ's love for His church. Ever since the dawn of human history in in the Garden of Eden, the devil does to us as he did with Eve. He tries to slander God. He suggests God's holding out on you. God's being austere and arbitrary. He's a hard taskmaster. He doesn't really love you. He's a liar, the devil when he suggests that. He's the father of lies. And if he's the father of lies, don't you think that his favorite lie would be one about God? And so if man does not know his God, he's a dupe of Satan. Through Christ, God loves us unconditionally. And we read in those closing verses of Romans chapter 8, worthy of being etched on tablets of silver letters of gold, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, for the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let me move right along because we want to take some of the usual time for preaching to observe the Lord's table together. What kind of love is it that Christ loves us with? I should say with which Christ loves us. What kind of love is it? What can we learn from these passages that we read from. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved is the writer here, human speak, humanly speaking, the Apostle John. I think he, being the one who leaned upon Jesus' breast, being the disciple that Jesus loved, being inspired of the Holy Spirit, don't you think he's well qualified to answer that question? What kind of love is it with which Christ loves us? First of all, it is, and don't be afraid of this word, okay? It is an electing love. In verse 16 of chapter 15, Jesus said, you've not, to his disciples, he said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he, he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And you say, well, pastor, be careful now, don't get off in this predestination business. Listen, we don't need to be afraid of what the Bible says. I am not going to say what the Bible does not say, but I'm not going to shrink from saying what the Bible does say. And I know some preachers that will not talk, use the word elect in their message at all. So they're chopping out a bunch of the Bible. When we first received Christ, many of us have the idea that it's something we did, <laughs> you know. We finally surrendered. We finally chose Christ after holding out for many years or months. But then as we read the Word and come to know more fully the depravity of our own heart, we acknowledge with humble gratitude, before I ever chose Him, He chose me. And so we sing songs about it. I hope we mean it when we sing it. We often sing, O happy day that fixed my choice on Thee my Savior and my God. One of those verses, one of those stanzas says, He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. Yes, He chose us if we chose Him. Not many wise, not many noble after the flesh, not many mighty are called. You know, God chooses a lot of people I wouldn't have chosen. I'd have just left them on the sideline. They wouldn't have been in the ball game at all. But that's why He's God. He can do what He wants to. It's all of grace. You say, well, it's because He foresees that we're going to believe. Well, wait, 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 wait. If that's true, then he, he saves us based on what we're going to do. That would be of works. And we're not saved by works. Why did He set His love upon me? I don't know. I can't answer that. I just bow at His feet and humble myself in the dust and worship Him. Because... I'm going to hammer the nail a little bit further. Men do not naturally choose Christ. Many have that mistaken notion. Many songs we sing are unscriptural on this point. The lyrics, a lot of them say essentially the same thing. I was going down this lonely road of life, uh, doing my own thing. I was making a mess out of things. But I was looking for Jesus. I was just looking for Him in all the wrong places. And then I finally found Him, and my searching was over, and I was changed. A lot of songs say essentially that. They're songs of experience, testimony. That sounds sincere, and if the one who sings it can sing it with enough expression, 
Maybe, may, maybe people will be moved to the point of tears. Only one problem with it, it's, it's not scriptural. You may be seeking or you may have sought meaning in life. You may have sought joy. You may have sought peace. You may have sought relief from guilt, but you were not seeking Christ. And, and that's not my thoughts. That's what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, quoting from Psalm 53, listen to what God's Word says. Let God be true and every man a liar. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Did you hear that? Do you want to qualify that? Or are you going to take it at face value? There is none that seeketh after God. That's God's assessment of man in his natural state. It was true of Paul. It was true of all the apostles. It's true of every saint. It's true of every man. Men do not naturally choose Christ. You know why? For a number of reasons. Perhaps the biggest one is they see no beauty in him, that they should desire him, as the prophet Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter. They don't see any beauty in his person or in his work. Then also they don't see any need for him. Most of you are not going to go to the doctor unless you think something's wrong with you. Now there are a few exceptions to that. Some people like the attention, even if nothing's wrong with them. But most of you are not going to go to the doctor unless you see your need to go. Something's wrong physically. And men will not naturally go to the great physician unless they realize they are diseased spiritually. We would be of all men most miserable if Christ did not choose us. We definitely would not choose Him if He did not choose us. You say, Pastor, why do you labor this point? Because we need to realize this truth and humble ourselves in the dust. And sinners need to realize they can't just come to Christ anytime they think they want to. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now while the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Then men do not naturally choose Christ because no man naturally wants to be made holy by Him. Jesus is a personal Savior. And it was said to Joseph by the angel, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. She was pregnant with the Messiah. Thou shalt fear not to take unto her Mary thy wife. That which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior, Deliverer, for He shall save His people from hell? No. From Rome? The Roman flag was flying from the temple? No. He shall save His people from their sins. Jesus is a Savior from sin. Have you been saved from your sins? Or do you still love your illicit pleasure? Do you love your sin? Have you come to the place where you realize that that stinking sin that you coddle is what nailed Jesus to the cross? That's what caused Him to be alienated from His Father. That's what pressed that, those cruel thorns into His brow. That's what thrust the spear into His side. That's what, what caused men to 
gawk and jeer and taunt and mock and scoff and scorn and spit at him. Oh, you say, ha, pastor, don't throw that guilt trip at me. I wasn't even there that day. No, you were. We were all there that day. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, when he died on the cross, the iniquity of us all. You were there. I was there. Secondly, we are chosen in Christ from the beginning. The Bible makes that clear. Please don't just slur over those verses. And when you read them, take them at face value. I could give a whole slew of them. Let me give you a couple of them. Ephesians 1 verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Before there was ever a sun or a moon, we've been talking a lot about creation, both myself in recent messages, Dr. Matsko last week, what a blessing that was. Before there was ever sun or moon, before there was ever sea or land, before sin ever manifested itself, before man even loved man, Christ chose his own. And we love him because he first loved us. I am not trying to argue with you. I just want us to be humble before the Lord. Would you turn to Acts chapter 18? Acts chapter 18. Very unusual experience happened to the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, and I'll name the city in a moment because it's significant. But things were going pretty rough for him. People were blaspheming, people were rejecting the gospel. They were um, making it hard on Paul and Silas. And so the Lord appears to his servant in a vision of the night to encourage him. Verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Don't hold back just because things are going rough. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. What city was that? The most wicked city in the world at the time, Corinth. To Corinthianize meant that you were prostituting yourself as bad as you could. It was full of licentiousness and drunkenness and debauchery. And people were rejecting the gospel right and left, and Paul was tempted to be discouraged, but God said, wait a minute. Don't kick over the traces. Don't quit. Just keep on preaching the word. I have much people in this city. Had been saved yet, but they were going to. Folks, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Please don't argue with me. They had not chosen Christ, but He chosen them. They had not repented, but He was granting them repentance unto life. Why? We are chosen according to the good pleasure of His will. Ephesians 1 verse 5. We have not chosen Him, so the reason for His setting His love on us 
must not rest in us, it must rest in Him. The whole reason. Romans 3.24, I love this verse. Being justified, you know what the next word is? Freely. It's the Greek word Dorian. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You say, well, that just means justified freely without a cost. Salvation is free. You don't have to pay anything for it. You don't have to earn anything. Sorry, that's not what it means. It means without a cause. Being justified freely without a cause. God did not see or foresee anything in you or me that aroused His pity. The cause for His justifying us was not in us. The cause was in Him. Oh, this, this is hard on us. Some of us have not heard this before. There's a couplet I heard many years ago. It stuck with me. I hope you'll be able to identify with this. Why was I made to hear His voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? I can't answer that. Why was I born into a Christian home of parents that gave their children to God before they were born and made sure they heard the gospel at the earliest memories? Why was I born in a home like that instead of a Muslim home where I would never hear about Jesus except that He was just a prophet? Why was I born in a Christian home instead of born to a, a tribe down in Ecuador that a missionary I met several years ago made contact with. He, talked, he showed eight millimeter slides. He said they slept on the ground. There was a high mortality rate. If they had twins born, they fed the second born to the crocodile. I'm a second born twin. Why was I not fed to the crocodile? Because it pleased God. That's all. It pleased God. And all I can do is adore and worship and not take the credit. I did nothing. It's an electing love. It's a perfecting love. Thank God Christ receives us just as we are, but, but He loves us too much to leave us that way. Aren't you glad? He cleans us up. We are predestinated, it says in Romans 8, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Not just to go to heaven, but to be conformed to the image of His Son. John 15, 16, we just read it a moment ago. Jesus said, I've chosen you, I've ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit. Ephesians 1, verse 4, the latter part. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Listen, God is going somewhere with us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, Christ loved the church. He gave Himself for it. Why? That He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. One day, we're going to be presented to God without spot or wrinkle. And that's the way He sees us already. And God is absolutely committed to perfecting His blood-washed children, to bringing every one of His sons 
to glory. It was for this reason that Jesus died, as it says there in John 13, verse 1, having loved His own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. He loved them to perfection. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them all the way. Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing. So this is something we can know, folks, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. We've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Those works have been ordained for us just as we have been ordained unto eternal life. We are God's poem. We are God's masterpiece. We are His work of art. For all eternity, we are going to be put on display before adoring and wondering angels, and to Him will be glory in the church forever and ever. So let's be very clear. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, totally apart from works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Nothing that we can do or hope to do or wish we could do will earn God's favor. But let's not apologize for good works. I hear some people magnifying the grace of God. They think they're magnifying the grace of God, but they almost apologize for good works. Uh, God did save us for that purpose. As someone has said, we're saved by faith alone. I said this recently in, a, in my messages on uh, enduring, uh, the secret of endurance. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by the grace of God that produces good works. I would not work my soul to save, for that has all been done. Amen. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. I would not work my soul to save, for that has all been done. But I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. Hallelujah, that's true. I hope it's true for your heart. Consider with me, we are chastened because Christ loves us. In some passages, in the book of Proverbs, it which Hebrews chapter uh, 12 is based on, it talks about God chastens us because He loves us. But in Revelation chapter 3, quoting from that same proverb, it is clear that this is Christ who loves us. So would you turn to, uh, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, it is Jesus speaking to the seven churches in Revelation. And this is directed to the church at Laodicea. He's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, who's writing this. And look at what he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, this chastening, as we read Hebrews chapter 12, in the the process, it's not very fun. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Have you stopped lately to thank God for His love, that He loves you enough that He has chastened you? He doesn't let you get away with something? You've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. God doesn't whip the devil's kids. Oh, yeah, the way of the transgressor's heart. But God knows who's redeemable. 
And He expends the trouble on us because we belong to Him. And we need to respond to lesser forms of chastening before God has to step it up a notch and use more severe chastening. Remember Peter, as big a failure and sinner as he was, denying Jesus three times, once he even cursed and swore. Yet all it took was one look from Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest, one look of Jesus upon his shameful disciple, and he wilted like a flower. And he went out and wept bitterly. A thorough work of repentance was done in Peter's heart. Then consider with me, as we think about this perfecting love, we are taken into Christ's confidence. This is a great privilege, something we seldom think about, but we go back to John 13, look at verse 21 through 26. I've never heard a message on this, so I'll be hearing myself. Mine will be the first time I've heard anything. Verse 21 of John 13, back to the 13th instead of 15th. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit, and He testified, and He said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, one of you shall betray Me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom He spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that's the writer, John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to Him that He should ask who it should be of whom He spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? They didn't know. They didn't suspect Judas. The point I wish to make from this passage is simply this. We tend to tell our joys to anybody and everybody, but we tell our sorrows only to those who love and understand us. I mean, when I see a girl who's just gotten engaged, you know, she's not too discriminating about who she lets know. Now, she's flashing that knuckle buster to Everybody. I just got engaged. When somebody's been diagnosed with cancer and they go to the doctor and they get a clean bill of health, they're not too discriminating about who knows. But we tell our sorrows only to those who love and understand us. And that's what Jesus did here. Psalm 25, verse 14, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant those who fear Him. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus spoke so tenderly to His forlorn disciples. He said, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Did you get that? Did you get that? All things. Jesus said, all things I have heard I have passed on to you. Again, I'm not going to explain this away. I'm going to take it at face value. We are slaves who have become friends 
Don't tone down this verse. Don't minimize it. Don't try to do something to, so you don't offend modern sensibilities. Christ has no secrets, holds no secrets from us. Everything that the Father has revealed to Him, Jesus passes on to us. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. We have complete access to Him. We are accepted in the Beloved. The Father doesn't make us leave the room when He wants to tell Jesus something. Or maybe I missed something. And that knowledge is power, beloved. The more we know, the more we will appropriate. We will go on to do, as Jesus said in verse 16, we will ask the Father in Jesus' name, and He will give it us. And we know that we are asking according to His will because God told Jesus what His will was, and we were eavesdropping. Or Jesus told us. Should we not therefore pray with the psalmist, Lord, perfect that which concerneth me, Psalm 138, verse 8, forsake not the works of thy hands? Yes, the secret of the Lord is with the righteous. Let me tell you something, folks. The world has crept into the church just about as bad as it is outside the church. And we don't see a real pressing, serious concern about putting away sin and living wholly separated lives. And that's the reason we don't get our prayers answered. And that's the reason we're not admitted into the intimate counsels of the Godhead. The secret of the Lord is with the righteous. The love of Christ is a perfecting love. It's a sanctifying love. Thirdly and finally, and then we'll observe the, ele- uh, the table, the Lord, the elements together. It is a reflecting love. In John 13, verse 35, you know this verse, you've heard it many times. He concludes this passage by saying, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's an amazing statement. It's fascinating to me. Did you catch this? Jesus right here gives all men, even notorious sinners, the right to judge our profession of Christianity solely on the basis of whether there's a visible, discernible love one for another in the body of Christ. He didn't say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you live a morally impeccable life, if you study your Schofield Bible every day. No, he said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. They said of the early Christians of the first century, behold how they love one another, even the enemies of Christianity. Let me talk about that love and then I'm done. The love of Christ will influence our love because Jesus said in verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. That's, that's interesting. Spurgeon called that the 11th commandment. And, and Jesus gave here what is called a new commandment. He said, I give unto you a new commandment. Well, what did he mean by that? D- did that mean that in the Old Testament, uh, we didn't have to love one another? No. The summation of the Ten Commandments was, first of all, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, thou shalt love thy neighbor as what? 
thyself. Ah, now we're coming up on something. There's a different yardstick. There's a different standard laid down. It's no longer thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as I have loved you. Woo, that ups the ante. That lifts the bar. Jesus introduced a higher standard of love than the Old Testament law. He actually commanded His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. He actually commanded His disciples to love their enemies. How in the world could they do that? I'll tell you why. Because Christ loved them when they were His enemies. We cannot experience the love of Christ without reflecting that love to others. We cannot enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus without extending that same forgiveness to His fellow servants. For if He forgive not men their trespasses, this is what Jesus said in, as part of the, of the Lord's Prayer, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, I appreciate Schofield and Schofield notes, but he has a, a very misleading note right there in the old Schofield Bible. I don't know what they've done in the new, but he says this is legal ground. This is not what we need to pray in the New Testament age. I beg to differ. If Jesus said it, I don't think it's legal ground. If we want to experience the forgiveness of God, we're going to have to be forgiving ourselves. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The love of Christ will influence our love. The love of Christ will cause us to love impartially. Jesus said there in John 13, verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. We are debtors to all men to give them the gospel, to live out the gospel, not just to those who seem worthy. Because let's face it, none are worthy. We've all gone out of the way. We're all sinners. There's none righteous. No, not the one. And if we love Jesus as we should, we will love everybody else for Jesus' sake. Yes, we'll hate the sin, but we will love the sinner. We will offer God's full and free forgiveness to any and all. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Sweetly echo the gospel call, echo pardon and peace to all. No sin will be too great. No sinner will seem too loathsome. Having been forgiven much, we will love much. Oh, beloved, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should become the sons of God. We're going to open these little packets in just a moment. As you look at that packet, could I ask you something? Just as you're about to open that little packet to take the wafer and then the juice, have you opened your heart to the love of Christ? Make sure today that you are one of His own, because the love of Christ to His own is like nothing else, no other love in the world. Shall we pray? Father, help us to open our hearts to receive this special, surpassing, distinguishing love of Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, you've been given to us to displace that spirit of bondage and fear, 
to cause us to cry out naturally. It just comes from within. Abba, Father. Lord, You sent Your Spirit to shed abroad, to gush forth in our hearts that love, according to Romans 5, verse 5. Help us to open our hearts to receive it. And then in the security that we receive in knowing that You have set Your love upon us, help us to reflect that love to others. Help us to pass it on. We can afford to because we know we are loved. And there's plenty of that love to go around. Oh, God, melt our hearts with your love. With the realization of it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.